Walk Back to the Line podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Particular topic of today is one that I have been almost exclusively avoiding mentioning in any type of public forum for pretty much the last nine months, eight months or so, just because I think it is so politically charged and people are so vehemently opinionated from both sides. So I tried to avoid the conversations almost entirely and just uh, follow what feels appropriate for my own biology and those of my loved ones. But in this conversation, I thought it would be supported and valuable to get to share some questions with a world-leading expert on the topics of what the heck is going on in the world right now in immunology and virology and things of the sort. So had Dr. Stephen Quay on the podcast. He's the author of Stay Safe, A Physician's Guide to Survive Coronavirus. He is an MD. He is a PhD. I'll read his bio off of his book here. Uh, he received his MD and PhD from the University of Michigan. He's a postdoctoral fellow in the chemistry department at MIT with Nobel laureate H. Gobin Corana and a resident at the Harvard MGH Hospital. He spent almost a decade on faculty of Stanford University School of Medicine. His contributions to medicine have been cited over 9,900 times. At this point, it's probably much more than that, I'd imagine, because this is an old bio. He's been deeply engaged in medicine for many years. I also appreciate his perspectives because he's not... 27 years old and an Instagram influencer. He's, I don't know how old he is exactly. I don't know. I don't want to guess, but he's like an elder. It's been on the earth for longer than a lot of people that I know. And so I appreciate getting to hear those perspectives from people in situations like this one that have been around to see the various different cycles throughout history. So really interesting conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. Nothing in this conversation is meant to be prescriptive. One thing that I've learned over the last year is you cannot please everyone in a politically charged conversation such as what the heck has been going on over the last year. But I think Dr. Quay did an excellent job at breaking things down in a very pragmatic, well-researched, scientifically backed perspective without excessive bias in any which direction. So I appreciate his adaptability and flexibility and being able to think from a variety of angles. And I appreciate getting to share that with you guys. Per mentioned, I'd imagine people will be probably pissed off in some way. There'd be no way to even say the C word or the V word without pissing some portion of uh, humanity off. And, you know, say lovey. That's the way it goes. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. I hope you appreciate Dr. Quay. And uh, I hope you are staying safe in the world. I hope you are staying healthy. I hope you're getting lots of sunlight. I hope you are connecting with community in whatever way feels good for you. I hope you are got your joie de vivre gone. You're living a life on purpose. If you're not living a life on purpose, you're probably going to die, you know, at some point. Statistically speaking, there's a high probability chance that you will transition out of this body at some point. So why not start living your life on your own mother flipping terms today? Start investing yourself in things that you are passionate about, you know, YOLO. All right. Thanks for sharing with friends, sharing with family. Thanks for reviews on whatever the freak you are listening to this on. And thank you for doing you. Here we go. Back to the scheduled programming with the good physician scientist, Dr. Stephen Quay. Here's where you and I can really make a difference, okay? Because 
COVID kills old people, but they don't kill them because of their age. They kill them because of their lung capacity. Okay. And so basically when you get COVID, you have this 10 day race. You got to get your immune system going before the virus kills you. Your body tries to help. So making mucus and filling the lungs with mucus to trap the virus. Now, if you can't clear that that mucus, which is an intercostal muscle issue. If you can't cough with high velocity, it builds up and, you know, and then the virus takes over. So one of the things I do in my book is I teach, uh, I, I, I recommend getting this little instrument and there's half a dozen on the market, they're 20 bucks or something, that trains your intercostal muscles. No machine in the gym exercise your intercostal muscles. Mm. Even doing aerobics, you know, you're, you're breathing against zero resistance. So basically, it's breathing in and out with resistance, and that's what these little devices that you can you see on the internet to do. Oh so, yeah, I've I've got a bunch of them. The little little rape whistle thing you blow into it. Pretty much, yeah. It's, it makes it hard to breathe in, hard to breathe out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's training your intercostal muscles. That's point one. But point two is, you know, you can recognize a, an old person from a you know hundred yards away because they stoop down, yeah. and in that process of sort of going back to fetal, <laughs> going to ground, they reduce their lung capacity. So if you do a chart, I do a chart in the book of age versus lung capacity, you lose about 40, 50% of your lung capacity by the time you're 70 or 80 years old. And so that's reversible with a yoga-based process. So to the extent that you can put a video together to teach people how to really expand their lungs and get it back to where they were at age 40 or something like that, you will save lives. I love that. I mean, that's all most of the respiratory related videos that I already create, but that would be a really beautiful thing to create something specific for COVID. The stuff I do in the book is very old fashioned, very mechanical, you know, so getting gravity going, hydrating yourself in a steam area, not a sauna because of the dry heat, but you want moist heat to to reduce the viscosity of your mucus, make it more hydrated, drinking a lot of fluids, but raising your temperature in a sauna is exactly what you need to do because COVID doesn't do very well at 42 degrees C. Yeah. So I had COVID maybe a couple months ago. And so one of the things that I was doing was exactly what you're describing, which was, I think, just following my own kind of intuition. But I was doing a lot of massage and around my ribs and intercostals and doing a lot of breath practices and doing a lot of like extended exhalations and breath holds and then big breath, you know, respirating back in through the nose and just trying to clear myself out the best that I could. And I mean, here I am. So, I mean, I'm not sure how to what level, of, but you're saying that's actually very helpful to really work on, on respiratory efficiency. It, it absolutely is. And it's a difference between life and death for somebody who's over 60, let's say. You know, if they're not a true yoga practicer their whole life, they're going to have a 40% reduction in their lung capacity mm-hmm. and about a 50% reduction in the velocity that they can cough. Were you coughing up a lot of stuff, I, I assume, or...? I didn't have a big cough. There was two, maybe three days where the first thing in the morning I had phlegm that had, it had like a little bit of blood in it, which was kind of curious to me. And I had a lot of heat in and around, essentially felt like my trachea. And so I felt like there was definitely like warmth in and around from like my Adam's apple down to my, the bottom of my sternum. Um, yep. And that was kind of the sensation that I had. I was beat tired for 36 hours. The first 36 hours, I just slept. I never got out of bed. I mean, I got out of bed a little bit. You know, I pooped, I think, at one point, but that was the extent of it. And then I had this drain battery sensation for about probably like 18 days or so. And it was kind of this question of like, am I healthy? Am I, is is this what healthy is? I'm not sure. But the actual respiratory symptoms lasted for me maybe seven to 11 days. Okay, that's exactly right. And by 10 days, your immune system usually catches on. 
and you take care of it, and you know, it goes away. So, yeah. yeah. So, what are some of the mechanical um, okay. things that you would recommend? In the book, I talk about the body's response to an infection in the nasal passages is to produce mucus and physically trap the virus particles. But the same thing happens in the upper and lower airways. So if that's happening, that's a good thing for your body. But what you want to be able to do is clear it out. The body wants to make it thicker. And what you want to do is make it thinner to make it easier to cough. So hydration from the outside, which is, you know, getting hundred ounces of water every 24 hours, just as much as you can do so that your urine is absolutely white. There's almost no yellow whatsoever. Yeah. And then hydrating from the from the outside, which is to get into a steam shower as hot as you can stand it, stand off to the side so you don't scald yourself and breathe that steam in because the thick mucus will take up that water, it'll get thinner, and then you can clear it. And then clearing it is the key thing. So then you then you want to have gravity working with you. So, you know, like with a cystic fibrosis kid, um, one of the things the parents end up doing is they lay them down, uh, maybe down with a downward gravity. And then if you have someone, if you have a partner that you live with or something, you can do cupping on, on the back and then they cough. Uh, so that's uh, a good idea. Yeah. A combination of that. So God, I have whole sections in the book on that, that that really help you help you with that aspect of it. What about specific breathing practices? Are there any particular breathing practices that would be supportive? Absolutely. What you want to do is to have deep breathing, breathing in through the nose, because one of the remarkable things is that the nose makes nitric oxide, which is yeah. a gas, but it's also a blood vessel relaxer. <laughs> I remember when, when Viagra first came out and I was reading the package insert about it. And, you know, one of the side effects was stuffy nose. And I'm thinking, what the heck is that? Hmm. So it, it turns out that the same receptor, the, the PD4 receptor that Viagra works on, you know, in the peripheral tissue to make it, to, to make it engorged with blood those same receptors are in the nose. And the purpose in the nose is to actually release nitric oxide into the intake of your air. It goes into your lungs and it lowers your blood pressure and relaxes you. So slow inward breathing through the nose to full capacity and then breathing out through the mouth, which I believe is, is recommended in some of the yoga practices, is exactly what your body wants you to do. Yeah, that's beautiful. And then what is your perception of the origin of this thing in the first place? Well, yeah, that's that's the uh, $20 trillion question, I guess, because that's the economic damage at this point in the world right. for this virus. Not 64,000, but, you know, 20 trillion. I've looked at this pretty carefully, actually. And, and obviously, it's a critical question that you want to be sure you're, you're right on because it has, you know, so many downstream implications. But it's a coronavirus. It's clearly has a bat skeleton. So, Coronaviruses have 30,000 letters. So if our genetic code was written out by the Gutenberg or something, it would be like 100,000 Bibles, you know, or Moby Dicks piled on top of each other. COVID is a 30-page pamphlet. Hmm. Okay, so it's pretty small. But it's mostly a bat coronavirus. But then it has all of these changes that happen in nature sometimes can be done in the laboratory, have been done in the laboratory, that purposely make it more infective, purposely make it more transmissible. You know, things that people have been doing for 20 or 30 years in a field of research called gain-of-function research, where virologists purposely take the tools of synthetic biology, purposely make a virus that doesn't exist in nature, but that could, and then try to figure out how to stop it, because when the things they make are really deadly. <laughs> and what you want to be sure is you have a lab that protects it. And, and we have, you know, sort of one lab accident a year in, uh, in Asia. So my, I guess, 
at the end of the day, I, I think the, the evidence is that it probably came from a laboratory, sure. uh, probably in an accidental release of some kind. Do you think that there's any potential foul play in relation to the, the, the accidental release? That there, I've heard some various stories of funding being taken away and this and that. Do you have any, any thoughts or insights? So as I said, this field of research called gain of function, been around 30 years, you try to make viruses more virulent. There is no fundamental difference between doing that research for the purposes of finding vaccines or treatments and doing that research to develop a, a bioweapon, uh, you know, if, if someone wanted to. Yeah. Nothing yeah. in the research itself teaches you about the motivation of the people doing it. So you're left with interviews of them or, or some, you know, email trail or some, some other ancillary evidence. That's another way of saying it is that every time you're doing gain-of-function research, you are potentially creating something that could be used in a bioweapon. There actually is, a, is an acronym for this. There are committees around this. It's called Dual Use Research of Concern, a real sort of benign phrase for a committee that decides whether you can make a virus that could kill 2 million people and infect 100 million. Does it being, whether it was produced in a lab or whether it did naturally come from a from a pangolin or, you know, market, sure. whatever. Does that make a difference as far as the impact on our biology? Or is that, is there one scenario that's better or worse than the other? So one of the remarkable things about this virus, the way I looked at it was to say, okay, SARS-CoV-1 happened in 2004. There's a Middle Eastern virus, MERS, that came out in 2013-14. It went from bats to camels to humans. There's a, a bat to pig infection. And these three infections are fully understood. Everybody agrees they're what's called a, a zoonosis. So it's from an animal to a human transmission. So you look at patterns there and you look at COVID too and you say, what's the same and what's different? So in SARS-CoV-1, when the virus first jumped into humans, it only had about 14% of the changes it needed to become an epidemic in humans. So it would jump into a human, the human would defeat it, it'd go back into, into this case, it was civet cats. It looks like it spent about a year or two doing that, going from 14% up closer to 100% before it finally had all, all the tools it needed to infect humans. Here, 99.5% of all the changes that could be useful in humans were present in the first patient. So nature usually practices this sort of thing a great deal. So that, that's a sign that it wasn't practicing in the world. Because the other thing you, you, you look at is in SARS-CoV-1, there was evidence of the virus before the epidemic. So one of the classic things to do is an epidemic happens, you go into that area and you go in the refrigerator of all the hospitals and you look at blood from people in that area for the last 12 to 18 months. What you see is four or 5% of them have evidence of having had that infection before it was an epidemic. It's called seroconversion. So you go into Wuhan, you go into China, and there's 2,000 samples that I've been able to find with zero, zero evidence of this virus ever being in a human before December 2019. How much flack have you had on having opinions about all this stuff? Well, you know, I, I have 300 publications. I've been cited, you know, 10,000 times in the literature. I, I taught at Stanford for 10 years, so I was real hardcore academic before I went into biotech. I'm having a lot of trouble getting my papers published around this. It's, it's a crazy thing, man. I'd never been, I'd always kind of deemed myself, I think, ignorantly 
liberal, Democrat, you know, like all of those words. I was like, I think that's me, you know, like whatever's okay. free love, support homosexual, like what, like, you know, I want equal yes. rights. Like that's, it seemed like that was where my mind was. And then since this, all of a sudden my mind is, has transitioned more into just, I guess, just questioning my political beliefs in the first place. And that, you know, freedom of speech is becoming challenged more than I've ever witnessed in my lifespan. Have you ever seen a, a moment in your lifespan that freedom of speech was more kind of on the chopping block? No, I'm probably twice as old as you are, but apparently this is very similar to the McCarthy years where people in, uh, in Hollywood were dragged into uh, Congress. They lost their jobs, their careers and things simply because they were a member of the American Communist Party, which was which is a legitimate thing. We're a country where if you want to be in a political party that is socialist or communist, you, you get to do that. You know, I, I would hope you wouldn't get a you know, majority of the votes because I think some of those governmental systems are, are dangerous. But no, and it's a very interesting time because, of course, as you and I did grow up, as the Internet took over more and more of our lives, you know, the Twitter version was that it was going to liberate. It was going to be completely free. You know, nothing could stop you on the Internet. It was developed by the military to prevent a nodal loss. So if, if someone took out one building's servers or something like that, the Internet would just go around it and you could continue to communicate. That was yeah. his fundamental starting point. And now to see that because a few companies have such control over over the public square effectively, um, you know, their, their censorship is, is dangerous to me. Yeah. So have you experienced censorship in your own no, experience? I, no, no, I haven't. No, there's, I want to say a dozen scientists that are really involved in the, uh, in the question about the origin here. Yeah. I email them, I send them science, try to get science back from them. For the most part, they've all canceled me on Twitter or blocked me on Twitter, whatever the version is. So. Yeah. The origin story doesn't go against the virulence of the virus itself. You know, it's it's not saying that it's it's not a thing, which I think at one point there was a camp that it's like it's it's just all all nonsense. It seems like most people are are in alignment that like it's definitely a thing and it's it's very strange. Are you gonna take the vaccine? Uh yes, I will. I, I have a preference. Uh, I have a preference to the Pfizer one, which is slight, but you know, Aaron, I think I think we're gonna end up in the next six months with look when 911 happened and I've been running public companies for 30 years. So you, yeah. you have to go to New York City to get your money because that's where the money is. So after 911, there's two or 3,000 new people in the, in the lobbies of every building in New York City looking at your ID to let you go in the elevator. The equivalent now will be that you're going to have to have your vaccine to get into that same building, your vaccine record. So, so I'll do it for that purpose. I think it's effective. I think it, it, its efficacy may not be 95% in the real world. There's a dangerous period between the first dose and the second dose. So you want to be careful and not get COVID-2 in that window for some reasons around that. You want to really get the full dose. When, for example, they were saying, well, we don't have enough for two doses for everybody. So let's give everybody one dose. It's like all the people are saying, no, didn't you read Darwin's book about evolution? What you're doing is you're, you're giving the virus the perfect environment to escape the vaccine hmm. by challenging it a little bit, but not enough to kill it. That's what the first dose does for you. So what about young people, what about me? Do you think that that's, you know, a young, healthy, 30-something, 20-something-year-old individual should be vaccinating themselves from, from this? I mean, that's it becomes a personal question. Of course, if you have any, you know, any medical uh, issues at all, if you're a little bit overweight, which is in fact a medical issue with respect to, to COVID, which may get back to breathing, actually. Remember, you know, abdominal obesity, you know, breathing against abdominal obesity, you know, you don't breathe as well. I think overall, we, we should try to get people vaccinated, you know, as best we can. 
But, you know, you, you said people have conspiracies about whether it's infectious or not. And Aaron, what they're, what they're doing is they're reacting to real world data and then laying a conspiracy on top of it. This is the strangest virus because it does kill older people. But then you see this couple in New York that are in their 20s. They got a four-year-old and both of them die, you know, within six weeks of each other of COVID. And they're in their 20s. And there's absolutely no explanation that I can come up with for these kinds of strange, you know, young deaths. Does anybody have an explanation for the weirdness of it? Like that was the thing that, and that was the reason that I leaned when I actually experiencing it internally, I leaned more towards like, this seems like it was made in a lab someplace because this is a very foreign sensation. There's a lots of, it doesn't feel like just typical flu. Does anybody have any concise at, at, this point in, at this point in time, I'd say the 60 to 70% theory on who dies and who doesn't die may be really simple, and, and, and we all weren't focusing on it, and, and so we kind of missed it, but it's the initial dose. So again, it's a 7 to 10-day race between the virus killing you and your immune system killing it. If you get a little bit of virus, you know, it has to replicate. It takes 10 hours for one particle to make 50 million. And then it does it 10 hours again. And, you know, every 10 hours it's doubling. So it's growing really fast compared to your immune system. So that initial dose may actually be what determines it. So if the, if the virus gets three days worth of dose, you know, when you first get it, as opposed to just a couple little particles, it may end up killing you before your immune system kicks in. So the initial dose seems to be the largest indicator of, of what will happen with you. And we also know that if, for example, you're in a room with a person who's breathing who has COVID, every minute you spend in there breathing yourself, you're increasing your dose. Mm. So 10 minutes is twice as bad as five minutes, and et cetera, et cetera. So that's the closest thing to an explanation we have. Mm. And so masks and all that, you're in support of people wearing masks. It sounds like from what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the motivations for the book was, in fact, when our Surgeon General and the CDC and all that in January and February were saying, well, masks don't do any good, so don't wear masks and that. And and in public health, you can't be dishonest with the public. They're, they'll believe almost anything if you keep telling them the truth. So the truth was we didn't have enough masks. Our supply chain was not in place to both give it for all the first-line healthcare providers and the general public. So we said, well, let's keep the general public from doing it by telling them a fib that it won't work. And then we'll mask, we'll get the doctors and nurses masked up, and then we'll switch to the to the people. Once you do that, and once, you know, three, four months down the road and you're changing your story, you lose your credibility on everything. There actually is a chapter in the book, How to Make Your Mask a Thousand Times More Effective. Now, I've gotten a lot of heat on this, a lot of heat on this. And uh, it hasn't been proven with COVID. It's been proven with half a dozen other viruses. So if you take a cloth mask and you spray it with a salt solution, the salt dries. And then it's little tiny crystals that you can't even see. And the mask doesn't even feel different. But what happens is when a droplet of water with the virus hits your mask, it dissolves a little bit of the salt. And then the water evaporates. And so what happens? The, the salt inside that water droplet goes to you know, infinity in terms of its concentration. You end up like the Dead Sea or like Great Salt Lake in, in Utah, That's and the cool. virus is destroyed. This is not my own work. This is a bioengineer from, uh, from Canada. He wrote a beautiful, detailed science paper. Basically, he, he saved animals from uh, deadly influenza by putting this salt-laden mask between influenza and, and them in a, in a cage and that sort of thing. I got a lot of flack for that. I got a lot of flack for that. But I still believe it. It hasn't been tested with COVID. It sounds brilliant. It makes a ton of sense. 
would take a moment and discuss the value of adding some electrolytes and natural flavors into our water. One of my, truly, one of my favorite companies that I work with comes from my good buddy, Rob Wolf, who's an absolute legend in the sphere of uh, ancestral living, health, wellness. Somebody that I entrust emphatically came up with a beautiful blend of potassium, magnesium, things that we need in our water in order to make it more available to be assimilated by our cells. So when you're drinking a bunch of water, especially if you're drinking filtered water throughout the day, it's pulling out those minerals. Those minerals are supportive for the function of your nervous system as a whole, your whole body, and also the availability of that water to actually permeate, penetrate you at a cellular level. So something that I do to remediate that, I mean, actually I drink spring water as well, BTW, but I will also add some element into my spring water. And it's a great experience. And uh, it makes me genuinely look forward to drinking water. So I'll fill up a big Nalgene bottle. I'll drop one of those elements in there, especially if I'm going to go for like a run or something. I'm going to be sweating a lot. And uh, I like look forward to drinking it. My favorite stuff is the cacao salt, which I find fantastic. But all their flavors are great. And you can get yourself a free sampler pack by going to drinklmnt.com slash align. That's drink, D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash align. And you will get yourself a free sampler pack of this stuff. You just got to pay five bucks for shipping. They'll send it out to you. You get to try it. No strings attached. You're probably going to love it. If you do love it, you can get yourself some. And then uh, they've got an amazing money back guarantee. At this point, you're getting a free pack. So you probably already know whether you like it or not. But if suddenly you decide you don't love it, then they will send your money back. No questions asked. No big deal. So jump over to drinklmnt.com slash align to get yourself a free sampler pack and improve your hydration experience. Also, would like to discuss the value of having a healthy gut biome. So we've heard a lot about how our mood, our cognitive function, things of the sort are in large part regulated by the gut microbes that are circulating inside our abdomen, inside our stomach, inside our intestines. A lot of the food that we eat ends up lending itself to leaky gut syndrome, gas and bloating, and poor digestion of the food that we're probably spending depending upon what kind of food you're getting, lots of money in hopes that it's going to be able to break down effectively. So if your food is not able to break down effectively, if you've got a bunch of old, crusty food wrapped up in your, your leaky gut situation, that will spell trouble for muscle repair. It will spell trouble for sleep hygiene, for energy levels throughout the day. And uh, a great place to start weeding out the bad bugs and reintegrating the good bugs and restoring the walls of your intestinal lining is through my guys over at BioOptimizers. Grab yourself the Leaky Gut Guardian. You can get yourself 10% off the Leaky Gut Guardian by going to Leaky Gut Guardian, L-E-A-K-G-U-A-R-D-I-A-N.com slash align. You get yourself 10% off if you do not notice a distinguishable difference from this then get your money back. They've got a full 100% money back guarantee. You have nothing to lose. So give it a shot. Try it. LeakyGutGuardian.com slash align. If you do not feel better, reach back out, get your money back. No big deal.
my sense is you will feel better if you've ever taken antibiotics or have you know, had a lot of inflammatory foods in your life in general, then there's probably a good chance that you would be supportive by this stuff. So jump over to leakygutguardian.com slash align and uh, enjoy your new gut. I apologize in advance for probably asking such like layman kind of no, dumb absolutely. questions. These are like things that are circulating through my mind. With the mutations of the virus, is this something that we're looking at for the rest of humanity? Is this something that it's like, is there a, you know, by the end of early 2022, we'll be back to whatever normal means? Like what, what's the future of, of coronavirus? This will go from a pandemic to endemic. So there are already three coronaviruses that are represent about one out of five common colds that you have. They started, you know, the first one was in Nebraska in 1936, and then there's a couple in, in uh, England in the 50s. So one out of seven, one out of five colds that you get are a coronavirus. And that's what happened. They came into the population, and then they, they are now just part of the mix. Yeah. And this is going to be part of the mix for for century, for 50 years. What does that look like? What's the the impact on the immune systems and you know at yep. a cellular level or at, yep. at like an experience level this year to next year to the following years to come? Biologically yep. speaking, not not politically speaking. Oh, of course. So the the most amazing thing is there was a wonderful paper that just came out a couple of weeks ago on antibody levels for those three coronaviruses that are common colds when they appear in life and what they look like in that. By the time a population is five years old, they all have antibodies against those three coronaviruses that have been circulating for 50 years. Hmm. That's where we're going to end up. Unfortunately, everyone has to either either get it or get vaccinated. So we've got yeah. 7 billion people that we got to get this thing through. Then we'll drop into some version of the uh, annual influenza, the annual other coronaviruses. So, and one of the amazing things is, you know, almost no young people die of this. I think it's four people under 18 in the country or something like that the last time I heard. So if you get this before five years of age and then you have antibodies against it and it mutates and it comes back again, so you have a partial immunity the second time around, this could be extremely mild or, you know, it could be could be somewhere between. It's, it's about two to three times worse than the worst influenza right now. So it could be about like influenza or even, even less where those old coronavirus, they're no different than a common cold. They're, Wasn't it that, was it SARS- one where they when they created a vaccine for it and ended up causing a, a a cytokine storm to manifest and having like a kind of like a, a hyperimmune response to the actual virus itself when they exposed I think it was like monkeys or something they were utilizing. Is there any kind of correct me on that, please? And is there any? No, Aaron, you know your stuff. You absolutely know your stuff. I'm and very is, impressed. Is there any potential concern? You know, six months down the line, one year down the line, ten years down the line of Operation Warp Speed vaccination for humanity. Yeah, there is. Again, in the book, I talk about this. There's never been a vaccine for coronaviruses in humans or animals. Despite a lot of efforts, there's a, there's a cat virus that's, that the veterinary community tried to develop a, a, an antibody around. And what I talk in my book about, there, this, this whole thing, it's called antibody-dependent enhancement. So basically, it's kind of a worst case. And dengue fever is the classic natural process where the first time you get dengue fever, it's pretty mild. The second or third time, it, it's almost fatal. And that's because of your own antibodies. Mm. So what happens is that the antibody is like the letter Y. The top half of, is, is what recognizes the coronavirus, and the bottom half is available for interactions with the immune system in different ways. So antibody-dependent enhancement is a, is a case where 
an antibody against this coronavirus then backs into an immune cell on the bottom end. And rather than the immune cell getting excited and, and making things to kill the virus, the virus says, oh, thank you very much for landing me on a new cell. It goes into the immune cell and it, it replicates in the immune cell. Again, as I say in the book, well, I mean, the worst case in that situation here would be COVID-2, which is mostly limited to cells with ACE2, which means the respiratory system and the GI system to a, to a lesser extent. So taking it from a pneumonia and a diarrhea and turning it into an HIV where it infects the immune system. And, you know, that would be, that would be horrendous. Um, we have not seen, and I'm looking very carefully at it because that, that's the case where you've, you've, you've vaccinated 100 million people and now they're sitting ducks for the next time the virus hits them. That's not a good scenario. I haven't seen it at all yet. So that's encouraging, but it's, it's out there as a theoretical issue. Something that, that also comes to mind is the looking at this specific, you know, COVID is more of like someone had the analogy of thinking of it as more as like herpes virus than just like a common flu, where it's something that could be a recurrent, you could have recurrent symptoms on an ongoing basis, respiratory issues or neurological issues or something of the sort. What are your thoughts on that? That's an important point, and I think um, there has been some discussion in the scientific literature around this, but so there are lots of different kinds of viruses, and then they have sort of different fundamental mechanisms. So the herpes example is a virus that integrates itself into your genome, okay? So it's not just a, a one-time date, so to speak. It's a lifetime commitment. It infects a cell, and then it goes into the nucleus, and then it, it inserts itself into the DNA of the nucleus. This is why, you know, in women who get a, a cervical herpes infection, that insertion process actually kicks off the start of cancer. And so cervical cancer from genetic viruses is, is exactly that sort of mechanism. COVID-2 doesn't integrate. It was looked at, it was thought, somebody published a paper, it integrated, and that was wrong. It only, it goes into the cytoplasm, not the nucleus. It does its thing. It makes, it makes progeny. It makes little, little versions of itself. And it probably doesn't hang around. I, I think that... So the people who have had COVID and then it's gone away and then it's sort of come back, there's five or six examples where they, they spend a lot of money to do some deep sequencing. And so far, it's always been a new infection. It's not been the same one sort of going underground for two or three months and coming back. It's got so many mutations, it couldn't have taken that path. Mm. Okay. So it doesn't hang around. Now, there's long-haul COVID, which are the organ damage recovery issues, right. which is a whole, that's a whole separate can of worms. So what is that? What's the difference between someone that's in the long haul versus someone that's, you know, asymptomatic entirely? Like, it's such a, a very fascinating pendulum. It's, it's ridiculously broad, right? So people can get it and don't even know it and people die. So the long-haul person is someone who is probably, you know, 100% have been hospitalized probably 60 to 70% have been on a ventilator and probably, you know, 90% have been on a ventilator for longer than a week. So, you know, you're a potential for long haul if you got in the hospital, got, had a ventilator, and, but got off and got, got out of it. And this is primarily lung, heart, brain, and kidney disease that lingers. And it, it's probably maybe reversible, but maybe even irreversible or end organ damage. So the virus has three phases, nasal upper respiratory phase for zero to three days, upper lung, lower lung for three to seven days. And then if you don't get it, then it goes into your bloodstream. And the bloodstream, it likes to go to the brain, heart, kidneys, uh, blood vessels, and it's already been in the lungs. So those organs end up getting damaged partially by the virus. You know, the, the virus does 30 and then your own body does 70, which is you, you attack your own organs. 
I'm in such great gratitude of talking to you right now. I just want to tell, like, I so greatly appreciate you being willing to just share all this. This is such, Thanks, such a, do you it's get fun. tired? Do, do you get tired of talking about this stuff? No. Well, I became a doctor because my dad wanted me to be, I want to be a scientist. So I got an MD PhD, one for me and one for my dad. Uh, <laughs> when you're a first child, that's what you do, Aaron, isn't it? Yeah, of course. You're not even, yeah, so you're that, not even Asian. Well, I may not be Asian, but everybody has kind of an Asian, you know, Jewish mother. <laughs> Somewhere in the in the mix there. Okay. Um, teaching at Stanford, I leveraged myself with my students. You know, and, and then I finally realized I could go into biotech, you know, inventing drugs to, to help more and more people. So my goal is just to help as many people as I can. I've, I've invented seven drugs that have been used by 80 million people. So, wow. you know, even when I'm sleeping, some of the things I, I did were helpful. But this darn thing is the worst thing in, in my lifetime. Wow. And so... You know, I want to bring to bear everything I know kind of to, to help folks. Do you see any, is there some 30,000 foot view that you could look at the COVID, this virus as being a perfect part of the sequence of, of humanity? Is there some potential benefit of this thing? Or is, is this just all like a black scar on humanity? And that's a weird question. It is, it is a weird question. So, I mean, I think... I think in biology and in evolution and in, in you know, sort of looking at this biome, which all living things are part of the same biome. I mean, there are only four letters in, in the code of life, and this virus and everything else uses the same force. So we're all intimately connected here. I'm reminded of one of you know, the fellow in Jurassic Park, you know, biology does what it, what it wants to do. So this virus has only one goal, if it were, and it doesn't even know it has a goal. I don't think it's, it has sentient properties, but it just wants to make more of itself. I saw a remarkable calculation here. Somebody said, well, how much COVID-2 has been made? What is the burden in the, in the biome of COVID? It's about three to 30 ounces. So 100 grams to a kilogram of SARS-CoV-2 has been created now after a year of this circulating in humans. So in total, total man, total. So if you want to get really Machiavellian, you say, okay, well, you know, chemical weapons were measured in tons, you know, and nuclear weapons were measured in tens of kilograms and that sort of thing. This thing is measured in grams. It's the combination of having, you know, something that's pretty, pretty damaging and it reproduces itself. So you know, having a chemical weapon that reproduced itself or a nuclear weapon that re you know, made more uranium, that would be uh, that would be the equivalent. What do you think's coming down the pipeline as far as pandemics and biological issues to well, come? So COVID-2 is going to have its own new, there's going to be COVID 2.0. It's already out there. One of the remarkable things is so this, this beautiful science group did a study where they looked at the 3,800 possible amino acid changes in the contact point of SARS-CoV-2. And they said that all but five were perfect at the time this, this virus was launched. That's kind of evidence that, wow, God, maybe this thing was done in the lab because, you know, if you're, you're trying to get an A in the lab, you'd do something at 99.5% perfection. Nature doesn't worry about being that perfect. Interesting. The new strain that hit the UK and is exploding and is going to hit the US in the next two months is one of those five. Hmm. So after about 70 million people, the virus finally found one of that 3,800 that made it a little bit better. So, you know, we got to get through the other four out of 3,800, but in the next year, the virus will have exhausted its capabilities and this will drop back to its, to its background mode. Part of my motivation in my work around what is the origin is... Um, the general public is the one that funds with, you know, treasure and blood, 
the research that, that we do, this gain-of-function research that we call it and that sort of thing. So I believe that the public is owed the chance to have a conversation around the benefits and the risks of doing this and making a sort of a democratic decision about whether this is the right use of our money, whether it's too risky to be doing and, and those sorts of things. So you are not going to get the virologists who love their toys to have a conversation around giving up their toys voluntarily. I get that. And they all have their theories about why gain of function should continue. But I think this can be explained in a level that everybody understands. And then they can say, you know, this is just too risky. So let's put in place regulations. I mean, I, you know, after World War I, we, we agreed not to use chemical weapons and only rogue states do it. And after World War II, we set up a whole nuclear regulation force. So chemistry was used in the, in, the, in the name of warfare and physics was used in the name of warfare. If this is biology used in the name of warfare, we need to put in place a process that this doesn't happen again. Yeah. For a person that's experienced, that, that's had COVID, they have the antibodies, do they need to get vaccinated? I would rely on, on what, your, what your local doctor says. Some, some are recommending that you do, some are not. For the vaccines we've had in the past, we were generally vaccinating against things that, that never happen anymore because our vaccinations were so successful. German measles is you know, almost wiped out. And so when, when the time to come to get vaccinated happens, nobody's ever had it before. So in theory, you shouldn't need a vaccination uh, if you've already had COVID. But I would rely on your, you know, your own doctor and your own relationship there to, to make that determination. I got to be careful. I, you know, I may be licensed in you know, 35 states in America, but I can't, I can't practice medicine by giving people medical advice on it without, you know, yeah, having them under no, my care. Could you get into the, the difference in the, the physiological response to a vaccine being injected compared yep. to you naturally getting some, what is it called, sputum? You're getting some COVID on your, in some orifice, you know, in your body having yes. the, the immune response and developing antibodies and going through that whole process. Like, what are those two conversations like? The primary route of infection is breathing in the droplets or aerosols of it and it, having it hit the mucosa of the nose and then growing in the nasal cells. On the side here, sorry, Aaron, but I want to get this out there. So there's some folks at the FDA that I was talking with maybe a month ago, two months ago, and they did an experiment where they, they wanted to see what monkeys would do with COVID intravenously. So they gave COVID to them IV, not through any other route, and they absolutely cleared it. Their immune system went bam, except for one place it infected their nose. Mm. So they had no nasal COVID. So even when you give it IV, it really likes to go to the nose. So um, there's a picture of the virus on my book there. And I think this is the best uh, focal for talking about the difference. So all of the vaccines are only giving you the proteins on those red spikes that stick out. Okay. Huh. So you're getting only that little piece, but you can see the, the virus it has a, a yellowish surface and there's, there's things in between. So the natural infection probably gives you, oh, I hadn't done that number before, but it might give you a hundred different targets for your immune system to attack. And so when you make a natural immunity against this virus, you're hitting all hundred in different levels. And because your antibody response 
it's an iterative process. So it's, it's so beautiful. So the antibodies that work the best during the infection as your antibodies are evolving, those become enhanced in the next round. So as the virus is growing, your antibodies are growing, your first antibodies are not very good. And then the next day, they're a little better in the third day. So between seven and 10 days, you actually do your own internal evolution. And the antibodies you end up at 10 days are rock solid against the things that stop it the most. And again, it's not a science-based process. Your immune system just says, I'm going to make a million things and whatever stops this virus, I'm going to make more of that one. And I'm not going to try to figure out what I'm doing. The beauty of it, you know, it's very intuitive. So the immunity from a vaccine is not nearly as nice as your natural immunity. Okay. So you, so if you had a choice and you're not going to end up having, say like the long haul conditions or any kind of, any kind of long-term issues from it, you would elect, if you if you knew, you could bank 100%, this isn't going to kill me or cause any kind of neurological damage or heart damage or you know anything yep. of that sort, you would elect to actually take the, the virus itself as opposed to the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. I was recommending now, no one asked me because I'm not in public health, and probably if I had been in public health where I had to sign my name on a, on a policy, I might have been a little less cavalier, but yeah. But I was proposing in you know in late February and March that we we have a process where everybody 50 and under just goes on with their life, and everybody 50 and over has the option of you know staying in place, working in place. We put in laws that people don't get discriminated if they want to stay home and yeah. try to work from home, or if they can't work and they they need to get paid and all that sort of thing. We do that, and then we we do that for four, five, six months, and then we see where we are. So, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I have to be careful, you know, patting sure. myself on the back there. But when you looked at the data out of China, because that was based on a, a report of, of 60,000 people from China. Do I believe Chinese data? Yeah, I believe 80% of it. Like, I believe 80% of everything. But their data was very clear that if you're under 50, this thing was not nearly as bad as influenza. If you're over 50, then it was worse than influenza. So draw a line at 50, 55, 45, whatever you, you want to do, and build herd immunity in a population that's going to survive. You're still going to lose people. I mean, we never talk about influenza and we lose 200 kids a year, 200, 300 kids a year die in America. They just don't get in the news. And so um, what do you think it is about this particularly that gets that is so deeply ingrained in the cultural zeitgeist now compared to like cigarettes or cardiovascular disease or car accidents or all these other other things that kill a lot of people like death is a you know, it's it's a, a part of life. Not to take away from it, because it is it yes. is weird and it is scary, you know, but it's fascinating how we culturally we shine the flashlight on a specific thing and we, you know, we're we're all in on this. It is, it is, you know, and I'm getting out of my lane on some of this stuff. So, you know, we we've gotten to the point where we've decided that we will politicize everything from sports to fashion to yeah, I, I don't know, you can just you can just go down the list. And because this dropped into the world at probably the most the most polarizing point, right? You're a year away from a very dichotomous election. And so anything that can be is dropped into one of the two camps and used, you know, as a weapon or as a as a, as a shield and that sort of thing. And so yeah. I think that that became part of it, you know. There's just some, like just simple things. So for for 100 years in virology in medicine, we've named diseases after the place they came from. So Lyme disease is an infection from old Lyme, Connecticut. Mm. And when I was teaching at Sanford, the fellow that found that was had a sabbatical in my laboratory. West Nile virus is from a, a river in Africa. Legionnaire's disease was a group of legionnaires meeting in a Philadelphia hotel. And the air conditioning system had this weird 
thing that killed, I think, 20 of them or 30 of them, that sort of thing. So if you wanted to call this the Wuhan virus, because that's where it came from, it would have been perfectly A-OK for 100 years. Yeah. But because of when it happened and where it happened, it suddenly became a, a, a political statement. You were describing the entire rest of your persona by using a description like that. Yeah. So why did you create this book? The key to me was in February and March, I was hearing disinformation, misinformation on the internet, like from the Surgeon General. And I said, you know, this is not right. So I'm going to act like I'm talking to the patients that are in front of me across my desk in my office and giving them advice about what is this darn thing, what they can do before they get it, what they can do if they go in the hospital. You know, there's there's a test. And I told people, write down this test, put it in your wallet. And when you go to the hospital, ask them to do this test on you, because that's the one that will determine whether you're going to die or not and that you need more attention. So anyway, on and on. So it's a book for, for lay people written as if you're my patients and... It's to keep you out of the hospital, it's to keep you alive, and it's to, uh, to help you. I, I try to use humor where I can and, you know, and explain things in, in provocative ways to make it more interesting to read. All the profits from this are going to a veterans group that volunteers in COVID communities to help them. So um, right. that's an important point. So you're, you buy the book. It's, I think it's $4 on Kindle and maybe $14 on Amazon. And the profits from that go to uh, this group. Are you going to do an audio version? Probably not. I mean, huh. I thought the book would burn out by now, but it's going to burn out when the virus burns out. It'll burn out, right? Exactly. Yeah, I'm really excited to. I'm. I'm sorry that I, I don't have the book already. I'm actually like, as we're talking, I'm like, I'm excited about. It. I mean, I've already had the COVID and all that stuff. But so for you, if you were seeing a patient now or people listening, if they have been exposed to COVID, like, what would the the playbook be? They know it's it's coming. Like, what what do we what do we do? So, do you have symptoms or no symptoms? Um, say, you know, say you, you're the very beginning of symptoms and you got a call from a friend. They said, Hey, you know, I tested positive for COVID and you're like, Oh, I did feel a little cold thing coming on. Like what's what, how should we approach that? So, uh, you want to eat really well. You want to give up your alcohol for, for a few weeks. You want to stay in bed sleeping. I mean, sleep is a wonderful thing. You want to, to keep your lung capacity as full as possible productive coughing. So you need to hydrate hundred ounces a day. You need to stand in, in, in steamy showers. So if you're coughing or if you're, you know, if you can clear your nose, it's pretty, it's pretty gross, but you know, you want to just be, you know, acting like a horse in terms of clearing the mucus because your body will make mucus wherever the virus is. So it knows what it's trying to do to, to stay off till the immune system can kick in. So play with that. Try to get as much sleep as you can. Take your vitamins. Vitamin C is probably good. Vitamin D is really good. There seems to be a correlation with vitamin D deficiency in this disease. So um, all of those, you're, you're basically, you're trying to buy yourself a week without this thing becoming a pneumonia. If you do that, you're going to, you're going to make it, make it in spades. Why is it that this turns into pneumonia? I know this is another dumb question, but what is, what is it about this that creates the potential threat for it to convert into pneumonia? It's growing in your nose. It's growing in the back of your throat. Every 10 hours, it makes another 100 million copies of itself. We don't realize it, but we aspirate saliva a great deal. You know, probably probably three or four ounces a day of, of the saliva in our mouth ends up in our lungs, in our trachea, and it, it coats down there. There are little cilia that whip it out, and we, and we swallow it then. So it's that process. It runs down your trachea. It runs down your bronchi. And all of those have this ACE2, which is the, the lock. So that spike on my on the on the cover of my book, that red spike is a key. It goes into the lock that's called ACE2. It opens the cell. Ten hours later, hundred million copies of itself come out. Mm. 
Is there anything that I haven't asked that would be supportive for people? I don't think so. I think I think we've covered a lot. I mean, it's it's a hugely frustrating disease because, as I said, it sometimes picks off people in their twenties. And I look through their medical history and I go, "There's there's just nothing here to to have predicted that." I I hate that. If they have one thing and I can predict, I say, you know, they had this and it's really too bad. It was you know the bad luck, but this is why they, I can't. And that's very frustrating. I think, I, and I'll get back to my point. Is I think it's yeah. dose. So um, staying out of the mainstream you know, for a while. What was the thing you said? You said if people could take a, a specific test upon testing positive for it, that would potentially be indicative of, of what their experience with it would be like? That's right, yes. There's a specific test for what's called fibrin split products. It's basically a, a signal that your coagulation, your blood thinning problem, uh, blood thinning system is, is breaking down. So if you're doing that, you're at, you're at risk of clotting, you're at risk of, of strokes, you're at risk of, of, of all of those sorts of things. I mean, uh, Bayer aspirin is actually probably a very useful thing if you, again, if you have symptoms, because one of the early things that this does is it messes with your coagulation system, your blood becomes hypercoagulable. So you end up with, with little plugs of blood in your lungs, which kill your lung tissue. You can end up with strokes because it goes into blood vessels in your, in your brain. So thinning your blood. I mean, a lot of times people are given blood thinners uh, when they get in the hospital uh, intravenously or, or, or subcutaneous, you can do that yourself with a, an 86 milligram Bayer aspirin. Right. Final thing. I wonder if you have any ideas as to why the mainstream, it doesn't really seem like from our leadership, we don't really get a lot of information on how to boost our immune systems naturally and be healthier. And, you know, even just getting more sun or vitamin D, it seems like I don't hear a lot of that unless I'm listening to a podcast, or maybe I'm just missing it. It seems like most of the information that I hear from the mainstream is just, you know, stay home, mask up, eventually the vaccine will come and save you. Do you have any thoughts as to, is that just the nature of like the Western political system that, you know, or do you have any thoughts on why that is? Yeah, no, it's it's the nature of Western medicine, Aaron. Um, I went to medical school in the University of Michigan, a fine school and all that. But now when I look back, 80% of disease is lifestyle related. So that's your diet, that's your exercise, that's your, your, you know, your other aspects of your lifestyle. I think nutrition, I'm not sure if I learned any nutrition in medical school, but if I did, it was one or two hours. It could be half of the 80% of lifestyle that is important for health. So it starts there. And if we don't teach our doctors, you know, what is the real root cause of, of disease and they end up running the CDC, all they see is, you know, medicines and machines machines and, you know, you name it. Yeah. And they're missing, you know, they're looking at the 20% uh, and they're missing the 80. Yeah. I was, I was reading about, have you ever heard of Antonio Moniz? I have not. Antonio Moniz, he won a Nobel prize for the, the lobotomy. Probably some other oh, stuff, yes, but okay, he was, yes. he was the lobotomizer. And it's just, it's an interesting thing in history, thinking back of like this, this guy, he had the belief that through correcting synaptic dysfunction, you could essentially you know, correct all these different mental neurological issues from like just, yeah. you know, depression or, you know, mania, all these different things and, and, you know, destroying the brains of tens of thousands of, of people and being applauded for it. Yeah. And it's just an interesting thing to see like the incidences in history where, all of the people in the white suits and all the people with the degrees and all that stuff are, are, are saying a thing. And then in 10, 20, 50 years, you find out like, oh my God, that's what we were doing. And I'm yeah. always kind of just in reflection of like, I wonder, there's probably something like that happening right now. Like what, 
Absolutely. Is it? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, o- o- obesity is a major, is a major comorbidity uh, for, uh, for COVID. Again, lung capacity, you know, not, not doing yoga, not doing stretching, not doing walking, you know, even a little bit along those lines. Have you seen the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? It's a story of what you just talked about, which is um, he's sort of some, I think he's a very evil person, but he ends up in jail and then he, and then he gets the idea he's going to end up in a psychiatric hospital so he can escape or something like that. A, a long story short, he ends up being lobotomized. Spoiler alert. The it's other person, you probably know Ignaz Semmelweis. You're familiar with him, right? No. Oh man, you know, Semmelweis, I think it's, I think it's Semmelweis syndrome. I think it's this. He was the guy that discovered or, or got a hint that when doctors were doing, delivering babies, they were going from the morgue, working with, working with dead people. And then they were delivering babies. And he got the idea that you need to wash your hands in between that because you could. Oh yes. Bacteria. Yes. And then all, all the other doctors in that realm thought he was completely insane, and this is you know, he was, ridiculous. He was, he was yeah, ostracized, and he ended up he ended up going insane. I, I believe he end, ended his life so, yes. actually. He died in an institution or something like that. Or took and so blood. now it's called Semmelweis syndrome. I think is I, I believe <laughs> is essentially that when you know a thing, your intuition says this is correct. I know it, but culturally we're we're a little You're behind. Not ready. Yeah, we'll catch up maybe in six months, six years, but we're not there yet. It's just an an interesting thing. I I just wonder what those various different instances of that in the present moment are, because I know they're out there, you know. We'll know in 10 years looking back. We'll know looking back. Dude, thank you so much, man. I so This is a really enlightening conversation. I really appreciate it. For people listening, so the book's called Stay Safe, A Physician's Guide to Survive Coronavirus. And yes, sir. Is there anything else you'd like to to leave people with as far as places to find you or is it like where should people go? I have a website, drquay.com, that you can go to. You can buy the book from the website. You can buy it from Amazon. I have a lot of blogs there where I've, I've sort of in real-time diary-like, n- not blogs, I guess they're, they're written documents. I don't talk so much <laughs> about various aspects of the COVID, of COVID virus. At, at one point, I called it the Acela virus because it seemed to have focused on the Acela train that goes from Boston to D.C., and if you can imagine a virus that's picking off the movers and shakers of American life, like you know the media and the government and, and all of those folks, it probably amplified what was going on because those are the folks that determine the public conversation, you know, in, in America. And so the fact that their train was transmitting the the virus at an early stage may have had something to do with the sort of the overemphasis of of what we saw with it. My final, final, final thing. Do you know Dr. Zach Bush? Have you heard of any of his? I don't think thoughts? I have. All right. So one of the things he, he we're, we're planning on doing a podcast together, but one of the things he talks about is the, I'm going to butcher this, so I'm not going to say too much, but the, the correlate or association of pollution in relation to exacerbating the symptoms of coronavirus. And so some of the places like Milan and New York and these places that are like high polluted areas, that being a major part of, of the places that ended up having a rough go with it. Do you think that there could be anything to that or do you not know enough about that? No, well, I, it could be a contributing factor. I mean, I did a very careful study and shown that line two in Wuhan of the of the ten different metro lines there was the conduit to the world of that virus because there the Wuhan airport is on line two, et cetera. So, and an MIT scientist did the same thing in New York City. So, what I think those cities have in common is they have a metro system where you pack people into into closed tubes that the air doesn't circulate, and you mm-hmm. move them around the city, and then they go out and disperse you know, at every station. So that's the, probably that's the operative factor. Uh, pollution is a little bit of factor. I mean, it, it adds to uh, making your lungs work harder. So that's 
probably 10 percent for that do you think do you think all the people ranting about the 5g stuff are they just insane yes okay thank you <laughs> thank you sir what a, thank what, a, you, what a great time all right i will i look forward to releasing this uh thank you so much and uh, i look forward to connecting in person yep take care bye now all right see you bye Hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Once again, I am still absolutely in process of my own understanding of these complex issues. And per mention in the intro, none of this was intended to be prescriptive in any way. And I hope it was supportive for your own education with what the heck is going on in the world. If you did enjoy this, por favor, you can share it on the Instagram. Tag myself over at Align Podcast. Be happy to repost, reshare. And uh, if you guys are interested in learning how to improve your health, which would be a valuable thing since that's what we're talking about, uh, a great place to start would be the six-week Align Method online program where we get into things that goes much beyond just physical mechanics of movement. We also get into ways to boost your immune system through things like breath work. So if you are interested in understanding how to strengthen your own respiratory efficiency, how to open up the space in and around your ribs and your intercostals and make yourself a more efficient breather during these interesting times, which, you know, viruses or whatever or not, breathing more effectively is always going to be one of the most important things that we can do. It's associated to longevity and uh, it's just, you know, it's going to make you better at everything. There's nothing that breathing is, it's the foundation of everything that you do literally. So we get into that in the six-week Align Method online program. That can be found over at alignpodcast.com slash courses. That's A-L-I-G-N podcast.com slash courses. And uh, it is also on discount, which is very exciting. And I hope you guys dig that thing. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thanks for sharing with friends. Thanks for telling your grandparents. Thanks for shouting it on your rooftop. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Bye.